0: Father God, would you now please speak through my words, speak to our boys as they learn, and would you teach us and show us Jesus. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at evil—the nature, the cause, and the consequence of evil—and we're going to be looking at our passage from Genesis chapter two, verses fifteen to seventeen, and Genesis chapter three, one to seven. And uh, it's a passage which is incredibly helpful, actually, as we come to this first Sunday in Lent, because it's a passage which challenges us to examine ourselves. First of all, the nature of evil. We like to think of evil as something that is out there that happens to relatively good people like me. It's in those uncontrolled forces, natural disasters, floods or typhoons, sickness, death. It's in those few people who do really bad things You know, the Hitler's, Ceaușescu's, Fred West's of this world. But the stark reality is that evil's not out there. Evil's in here. I was struck by an illustration that I read as I was preparing this. A man called Key Warren visited Rwanda after the genocide. And he writes this. The first time I visited Rwanda... I went looking for monsters, albeit a different category of monster, the kinds that isn't relegated to B-movies. I'd heard about the 1994 genocide that had left one million people dead, tortured, raped, viciously murdered, and somehow I thought it would be easy to spot the perpetrators. I naively assumed I would be able to look men and women in the eyes and tell if they had been involved... I was full of self-righteous judgment. What I found left me puzzled, confused, and ultimately frightened. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures, I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. They took care of their families, went to work, chatted with their neighbours, laughed, cried, prayed, and even worshipped. Where were the monsters? Where were the evildoers capable of heinous acts? Slowly, with a deepening sense of dread, I understood the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda. There were just people like you and me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, If only there were evil people, somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds... And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So, what is this evil? Well, I would say this simply, evil is the rejection of the command of God, it is rebellion against God. God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat it. Evil happens when God says, don't do it, and we do it. Or it's when God says, do that, and we don't do that. James writes in his letter, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin." There's a great deal of discussion about what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil stands for. Most commentators say that it represents knowledge of everything, the good and the bad. And it was a knowledge which seems to have been able to be obtained, albeit in a wrong way, by eating the fruit of the tree. That's certainly how the serpent presented it to Adam and Eve. It said that if they ate of the fruit, they would then know good and evil, and they would be like God. However, I'd like to suggest an alternative interpretation. It's not a reading that I've found in any of the commentaries, so I offer it with extreme caution. I just wonder whether the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because by putting the tree in the garden and giving them the command not to eat of the fruit of that tree, God had already given them the knowledge of good and evil. There's no difference between the fruit of this tree and the fruit of any of the the other trees in the garden of which they can eat. It is simply that with this tree, God gives a command. He gives them the freedom to decide to obey him, or disobey him the freedom to do good or to do evil so when the serpent tells them that if they eat the fruit of the tree they will know good and evil it was a lie it was not eating the fruit that would enable them to know good and evil because of that tree being there because of the command they already knew about the choice between good and evil To reject the command and eat the fruit because it involved rejecting the command of God was evil. To obey the command and not to eat of the fruit was good. Evil occurs when we do not do what God wants us to do or we do what God does not want us to do. It's very simple. So secondly, looking at the cause of evil. You see, evil happens when we stop trusting in the goodness of God. If we trust that God is God, that he's on our side, that we are beloved, adopted, sons and daughters, and that God really wants the best, then even if we don't understand a command, we will still do it. When you go to the doctor and complain of a problem and the doctor tells you to take some tablets you take them you take them even if they taste awful because you trust that the doctor knows what she is saying but if you begin to doubt her competency or if you begin to doubt whether she really does want to see you get better then you'll probably stop taking them. So the serpent questions the goodness of God. It says to the woman, you will certainly not die. God knows that when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words... It's saying the reason God gave you this mysterious command not to eat the fruit of this particular tree is because God doesn't want you to become like him. He's jealous of you. There's something in that garden, says the serpent, that God is keeping from you. Evil begins with a wrong view of God. It begins with a wrong theology. That's why the Ten Commandments begin with a statement about what God has done for the people and then the command to worship God. So they begin with the command I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. So, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the God who's on your side. I rescued you from slavery. I did amazing things for you. I showed you my power. You can trust me. It's why, for example, in most of Paul's letters, the first half of the letter is about God, about who he is, about what he's done, what he's done for us. And then Paul goes on in the second half to say, in the light of that, live like this. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, and he's just spent 11 chapters telling us all about God's mercy. He says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's why theology matters. We need to get the mind, our thinking about God, right first. And when our knowledge of God gets twisted or perverted, then evil begins to take over. When we doubt the goodness of God, we begin to doubt the goodness of what God says, especially if we don't fully understand uh, why God has given us certain commands. You see, there are two ways of looking at the commands of God. The first way is to look at them and to say, the God who made us and loved us gave us these commands. I can begin to see the wisdom behind them, even if I don't fully understand why. But I know he's still God, and I trust him that they're for good. So I obey him. Or we can look at them through serpent-shaped spectacles. God? Does he exist? Does he care? How do you know what he thinks? These aren't his commands. I mean, for instance, things like the Ten Commandments. They were written by prejudiced men from a long-gone past. They're a challenge to my freedom to be whoever I want to be and to do whatever I want to do. So, the first cause of evil is when we question the goodness and the love of God. But there's a second cause of evil here our wrongly directed desires cause us to commit evil. The devil questions the goodness of God, he then lets human desires take over. When Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. Now all three things are good. They're about the physical needs of the body, the longing for beauty, and the pursuit of knowledge. But when we let our desires rule our head and our wills, we're in trouble. We allow the things that we crave, the things that give us physical satisfaction to shape and direct our lives, whether that's food or alcohol, drugs, the pursuit of money or stuff, pornography or sex. And they will destroy our relationship and they will destroy us. And the desire for beauty, whether in art, music, things or people, can also end up controlling our lives. It's a precious servant, but it is a tyrannical lord. If we put that desire first before what God has said, it will lead to evil, to our own destruction and the destruction of others. And the desire for the pursuit of knowledge can again become something very destructive if it's not brought under the authority of God. You know, we can see how destructive a headlong pursuit of knowledge can be. We can see it in a Hiroshima or Nagasaki, in the use of chemical weapons, in the proliferation of some GM crops when we simply can't know what the long-term consequences are going to be. We're like seven-year-old kids who've been told by our parents that we can't watch a particular film. You're not old enough, they say. But someone at school tells us it's really great, that it's got some really good stuff in it, and they don't want to watch it, you to watch it because they're really mean. And so we secretly watch it. And for weeks after, we have nightmares. We've got the knowledge, but we don't have the maturity to handle it. So the root of evil begins to get a deep grip on our lives as we doubt the goodness of God and as we let our desires control us. That's why Lent as a time for self-examination can be so helpful. We consciously use this time of year to look again at our desires, to prayerfully think through whether we're in control of our desires or whether our desires are in control of us. And the simplest way to discover that is to see whether, for the sake of God for a period, we're able to give something up. Thirdly, and I'm going to be much briefer, the consequence of evil. You see, everything that the serpent says is shown to be a lie. You will not die, the serpent says. Well, no, they don't physically die there and then. But that which was life in them does die. They will be cast out of the garden and they will know death. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, they do experience first-hand knowledge of the consequence of evil. But they certainly don't become like God. Your eyes will be opened. Well, yes, their eyes are opened. Not because they discover the secret of the knowledge of good and evil... God's already given them that. Instead, they see themselves and they see the other in a new way. They discover shame. The shame of having believed a serpent, a wild animal, over whom they were put in authority. The shame of having listened to the lies about God. The shame of having been led astray by their desires and the shame of having been caught out. And they cover up. This is not some ancient storyteller trying to explain the origin of clothes. This is about something much more significant, much deeper. Before, they were known in their nakedness to each other. Now there is something between them. Before, they knew each other completely. They knew each other's thoughts and motives. They knew the other's heart. Now they don't. Before they'd been led by trusting God and obedience to him. Now they're led by the unpredictability of their desires. Before they were two as one. Now they begin to blame the other. She made me do it. And Mars and Venus declared war on each other. And we're told in the next few verses that they even hide from God. Having deliberately disobeyed him, they cannot face him. And because they, because we can't face him, we believe the other lies about him, that he has no power, he doesn't act, that he doesn't speak, that he doesn't exist. And that's good news, or it sounds good, at least for a while, because if the God who is out there doesn't exist, then we're ultimately answerable to nobody, and we can do exactly as our desires, the God in here guides us. Evil is a denial of life and a denial of reality. It's the greatest ostrich act of all time. It's not just sticking your head in the sand, it's digging a dirty great hole and jumping headfirst into the ground. It's when we live backwards, you will realise that evil is live the wrong way round. It happens when we direct our life away from God rather than toward God. When we believe the lies rather than the truth about God. When we think it's all about my freedom to do what I want when I want. This is the root of the human problem. We're all part of it. This is the beginning of the stuff that leads to the genocide in Rwanda. And this is the problem that the rest of the Bible... And ultimately, Good Friday and Easter sets out to solve. Father God, help us over these coming weeks to examine ourselves. Help us to come before you in repentance, to cry out to you for our need for you. Set us free from evil. And would you help us to begin to live? Amen.